0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you're new or a guest here, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor, and I've uh, invited Sarah. She's going to come and... Oh, you're going to read from right there? Yeah, you can come up here. Then we could see a bit better. She's going to be reading from Exodus chapter 17, a portion from there, and 18. And so if you're following along in your Bibles, it'll be verses 8 to 13 in chapter 17, and then 7 to the end of the chapter in 18.
1: The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men to go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hand grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other side so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all those other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country.
0: All right, confession time. In 2020, our neighbors across the street, good friends of ours really, they were cleaning out a storage room or something like that, and uh, my buddy was, came over with a box of books, and they were Louis L'Amour westerns novels. Some of you know these books, shoot 'em ups, really. You know, he wanted to see if I wanted them. Now, my dad, uh, and, and most of you maybe know this, but my dad passed away in 2009. But my dad, growing up, read every single Louis L'Amour book. We had, I think, over a hundred of his novels on a shelf in our basement. And I had never read one before. And um, so when, when he stopped by and said, do you want these? There was something in me, especially after losing my brother just a, f- a few months before, something about connecting to my past, connecting to my dad to my brothers. Uh, <laughs> and something in me said, yeah, I really do want them. <laughs> and um, in my grieving, these gave me a sense of connection, I guess. And so I started reading them. And this is the confession part. I started enjoying them. <laughs> I would hear phrases as I read that my dad would use. And, and I'm like, oh, that's where it comes from. These, I've been saying these things and really they're just Louis L'Amour books that I'm kind of like regurgitating. I just didn't know it. Um, Catherine would also make fun of me for reading them. Um, thank you, my love. She would say things like, how's your cowboy romance going, Dave? <laughs> Which is not totally untrue. I mean, any, any good story is going to have some, some love story in it, right? I mean, but they are not Fifty Shades of Cowboy, I'll just say, I'll say that. So, now on one, on one level, I was reading these as a sort of catharsis. I, it, was, it was helping me actually kind of like work through some of my grieving. I, I did feel a sense of connection to my past, but at another level, I found this really interesting. There was this window into our culture, and I want to talk a bit about that today. These especially play off the rugged, individualist, lone ranger, I did it my way sort of myth that not only pervades the Western shoot-em-up genre of books, but it actually gets at the heart of some of our deepest commitments as those in the late modern worlds. The idea that we need to be strong, autonomous, to stand out as someone who's made it like on our own. That myth is still very much a part of our culture, uh, what we value. It's something we can end up giving our yes and amen to at some level as well. But the story that we just heard of Moses leading the people of Israel and the rest of the biblical story, actually, it challenges that myth of, you know what, I can do it on my own. And it offers us instead a healthy view of what it means to be human and what it means to be God's own people. So the big idea that we're going to talk about here, just one big idea today with a few sub-points you might say, is just this, God designed us to need each other. I know it's not profound, I know you've heard that before, but it kicks hard against our propensity to think that we're basically on our own and we have to function as an autonomous individual in the world. Today we'll see that being God's people means we need each other, We need each other for the battles we face. We need the wisdom of others, and we need to share the load of making disciples together. Pray with me as we begin today. Uh, Lord, I am so grateful that this text exists, that this was written down about what happened in history so that we could continue to hear your voice and your spirit's leading. You have things, God, you want to teach us through this text to reveal to us. And so, God, we ask that you give us hearts that are wide open to you. Speak, Lord. We want to hear your voice somehow through this message. Amen. So there's this switch that happens at this point in the Exodus narrative. Up to this point, the Israelites, in terms of their freedom from Egypt, where they've been going, they haven't lifted a finger. Well, I guess it's not entirely true. Moses has lifted a staff, but that's pretty much it. It's clear that the freedom that God's people have has been completely and utterly a work of God. This is God's grace writ large. But now, with the people in the wilderness, and and they've come under attack by the Amalekites, something's switching. We know from the Red Sea crossing that God could defeat Israel's enemies without them lifting a finger again. And yet, that's not what we see here. What we see instead is that God is calling his people to have an active role, to sort of stand on their own feet in some regard. Notice first, there's this intersection between the physical battle that's happening. Joshua gathers together an army and they ride down onto the plain to go to battle, to push back those who are attacking them. And Moses, it says that he's raising his hands. We assume there is a, he knows there's a spiritual element to this. There's this mix of the physical and the spiritual. See, they're still utterly dependent on God. It's ultimately God's work that's through God's people that will win this battle. The picture of Joshua on the battlefield, Moses with his hands raised, that continues to be really important for us as Christian readers today as well. See, earlier in the Exodus story, the Israelites, again, they do nothing but nothing to save themselves. They've done as some told actually, they did something. They had lamb for dinner. Okay, that's about it. They followed what the word of God said, they ate a meal, and then they left when God said go. So they do something, they respond in faith, but that's about it. And They believe God. And the same is true for us. We're made right with God. We are bought back. We're forgiven. We're freed by sheer and utter grace. From the cross, Jesus says the words, It is finished. And it was. And it is. And you and I have had our debt paid. Everything. It's paid. It's done. It is finished. And it was. Our debt is paid. We simply trust in him, and we eat a meal, just like the Israelites. In fact, it's the same meal, right? We've seen that. This is the continuation of that table that stretches all the way back. We come to the table, and as we take the bread and the cup, we're saying, we are, this is completely of you, God. And we just take into ourselves, feasting on what you've done for us. That's what Paul shows us in his letter to the Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to just chapter 2, Verses 8 and 9 says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Underline that word, boast. But, and this is key, Paul doesn't stop there. He connects that grace with actually the work that God is calling us to. He, the next verse says this, for, that's a connective, for we are God's handiwork. Some translations say we are God's artwork or his work of art. Do you know that that's true of you? You are God's artwork. It's actually a bit different than that too. I think Paul and the plural here makes sense. We together are the thing that God is putting together. And he says this, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see it? God saves us, God saves you In order to send you, he saves us so that we would be his sent people. Just like God's people leaving Egypt, it's all by grace that they do it, but we are freed; They're freed not just to be free. That's not the point of freedom. Freedom is to serve God. They're freed so that they might worship him and serve him and serve him alone, and the same is true for us. We continue to rely on God's grace, his empowerment, his work in us to do the things he's called us to do, to get at his work. It's why I love the word participation. I think that's really what God is showing us through this text. There's this participation with God's work and his transformation of the world. That's what we're a part of. Because like the Israelites, we also are called to roll up our sleeves and to get our hands dirty with the business of pushing back the darkness. And that comes in a lot of ways. We push back the darkness as we announce that Jesus Christ alone is king. He's the one who reigns. There is hope in him. There's forgiveness in his name. We seek God's justice for the oppressed, for those in need. We speak with grace and truth combined in a world that is often opts for aggression and deception. So instead of being puffed up by what we accomplish, we know (laughs) that ultimately it's always God's work in and through us. So our aim isn't achieving, achieving good things in the world so that we can point at and say, look, look what I did. Look what I made happen. That's me. So unlike the lionized version of that sort of self-made autonomous winner, the cowboy picture on the front with the guy like flexing his arms, unlike this, Scripture tells us that we live out of God's sheer grace toward us and that we already have a sense of being filled up by God's love. I just read that this week, um, Tim Keller had had just said something, and he said, when we boast, we do so to create a self-esteem resume to desperately fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. Our boasting is a way of saying, look, okay, there's a reason. I'm trying to fill something up inside of me, but here's what we need to know. When we know we're loved, we're loved by Jesus, that addresses that inadequacy. That love, it fills up the emptiness. So we don't need the resume anymore. You don't need to boast. You don't need to say, look what I did. I made it happen. We don't need that anymore. Praise be to God. And so this comes back to our main idea today. Um, Some of you, maybe, maybe many of you will know Rebecca. She is our missionary in Ukraine right now. And yes, she was there when the unthinkable was unfolding, when Russia began this evil war of aggression. Fortunately, the bombs weren't falling in her neighborhood specifically, but they didn't know if it could happen at any time, and she and the church ministry that she was a part of, they just dug in their heels and they began to serve, serve the many refugees that were coming from from the east who were fleeing just horrors, the things that they had to endure. She had to have a ready bag on the go. She and I were like messaging back and forth about what she would need in that. What would she need in case they got attacked and she had to make her way maybe on foot across the Romanian border? That's the place she was living in for months, not knowing what would happen. The air raid sirens, the going down into the bomb shelters, that was a part of daily life for her, a very on-edge part of daily life, I might add. And when she got back to Canada... so. February, the war started. She came back in May for a friend's wedding and to get some rest. And when she came, she was weary. I mean, bone tired. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. She was on the edge of tears almost all the time, she said. And she gave me permission to share this with you today. And so she and I started to meet. We would just have a weekly meeting for maybe an hour, maybe two in my office. And we would just pray and debrief, and read scripture, and make space for her to experience God's healing in that. Well, she returned to Ukraine later that summer and found a much deeper sense of peace and joy as she continued this good work of sharing the news of Jesus through uh, teaching English. But h- how do you go back? How do you go back when you've come so bone-tired as she was? I mean, of course, this, the classic Sunday school answer, Jesus, I mean, that, that's not wrong. Uh, but it's a little bit too simplistic for our purposes today. (laughs) Certainly, he's at the center of it all, but remember our story here. God is ultimately the victor. He is the strength behind everything you see happening in that Exodus story, in that battle. But there's this important intersection. There's this dynamic between the physical battle and the spiritual and God's people participating in it, supporting each other. So Jesus was at work in and through all of you who have been praying for Rebecca, who've surrounded her, who've loved her, who've stood with her, who've held up arms. See, sometimes we wrestle that question, like where is God when I don't feel him? Where is he when it's just so hard? At least one answer is this, he's right there in his people. That their arms are his arms. That their acts of love are God's act of love because Jesus through his spirit, is present in you. Where is God when it hurts? He's in his people as we share the load with each other. So Moses, he goes up on the mountain with his staff. Like He understands that whatever happens, Yahweh is going to be their strength. But he gets tired. He can't do it alone. And beautifully, he doesn't have to. Look at verse 12 again. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. We know from the story of Exodus so far, God could have won this battle without involving his people at all. He could have spoken a word and it would be over. But he doesn't. For whatever reason, he chooses that his good work would be shared with his people. It's by design that we need each other. So maybe here's just a take home for us. At some point, Moses' hands were getting tired and then maybe they started trembling. Maybe he said, hey guys, can, can you help me here? Maybe he didn't have to. Maybe they just saw the need and they, and they stepped in to hold up his weary hands. So here's my question for you. Do you need to ask for help? Is there something you're going through and you just need to let someone know? At men's retreat, Ricky reminded us that vulnerability is necessary for connection. Our capacity for intimate connection only goes as deep as our willingness to be honest about our weakness and our need for help. The cowboy myth be strong, be your own man, be independent, be tough, you can manage it. It's not true. You can't. And praise be to God, you don't have to. So on an everyday kind of practical level, maybe you need to let people know, my arms are getting really tired. Or maybe you can see it in someone else, and you just need to offer. In my experience, it's as simple as saying, how are you doing? Like, really? And then just letting the space be there for them to respond. More often than not, people will fill in that space if you give it to them. One of the commitments that I made with with Rebecca was that I would meet her once a month for an hour on FaceTime. And so, so I get, you know, FaceTiming with her. It's night where she is in, in Chernivtsi and it's morning where I am. And we just talk about the challenges she faces. We discuss scripture, the ministry she's a part of, and then we pray together. In this way, I get to hold up arms. And what a joy that is to share in that task together. I get to watch her leading people to know God and know his love and I know, because some of you tell me this, that there are people in this room who pray regularly for me and my family, for our staff team, that they go through the church directory and, and pray through it. I'm going to say thank you for that. Thank you, if that's you, because we really need it. It desperately matters. The reality is that we're not fighting Amalekites, but we are fighting. As Paul says in Ephesians, our battle isn't against other people. It's really not, but it is a battle. And we need each other in lots of ways. Recognizing the spiritual battle and lifting each other, other up in prayer is doing something. It's something that we need. So keep doing that. And seeing each other in our uh, in need, seeing each other in need, pardon me, and receiving the help in the battles, we need that too. And, and as this theme actually it continues in a different kind of way in the next scene with Jethro moses father-in-law as we heard moses was taking his seat from morning until evening and people were coming to have like disputes that they're having settled by him They're, they're there to seek i don't know god's wisdom through moses but then jethro steps in and asks he's like what are you doing why are you doing this why are you doing it alone and Moses, it seems like he fumbles for an answer, but he, but he gives his honest thoughts. He says, well, the people keep coming to me, and they're seeking God's will, so here I am. <laughs> Moses had this flawed sense that he and he alone could mediate God's wisdom to others. Today, we might call this a savior complex, a sense that, like, I'm the special, you know, I'm needed. Like, how many leaders has that burned out? You know, it all rests on me. If I don't do it, then no one, else, no one else can do what I do. I love how straightforward Jethro is. There isn't any malice in his voice. He's just concerned. He's concerned for Moses. He's concerned for, for the people of Israel. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. He says, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who are coming to you are going to wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Just like Moses' hands were growing heavy by keeping them lifted, so this workload was becoming too heavy for him as well. He needed help. Now, praise God for all the Jethro's out there. Sometimes we need just to be kindly and honestly reminded when someone sees us heading for disaster that we need to change directions. And then they actually say something. So, Jethro, he does it. Jethro is loving, and that doesn't mean he backs off and says, oh, you know what, I'm sure they'll figure it out themselves, or, you know, who am I to to speak up on that? Who am I to offer advice? You see, uh, he's not very Canadian, right? He can't just sit back and watch this man and these people flailing and heading for burnout. Jethro is a great example of courteous truth-telling. And Moses, for his part, he shows what real humility looks like. He he might seem a bit defensive at first. He can recognize, however, the wisdom in Jethro's words. This is key for us to see. Humility is generative. By generative, I mean it generates new things. Like, it's generative because it's open to new knowledge. It's open to new ways of seeing, to hearing input from others. Like, you can't learn. You can't grow if you think you know it all or you think you're done growing. Or if you think you can't learn anything from them that's important too again jethro's not canadian but also notice he's not an israelite he's an outsider god is using somebody outside of the 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 community of israel to speak truth and life into the community you see nowhere in the bible is it assumed that god's redeemed people have a monopoly on wisdom practical common sense or managerial skills The maxim, all truth is God's truth, is just true. (laughs) If someone who doesn't know God says something that's true, it's no surprise to God. God is, after all, the source of all wisdom and all truth. And we do well to be open and discerning about what we can learn from many people and many different cultures. Of course, we bring that all into conversation with the wisdom God has revealed through Scripture, and through his son. And, and that's the series we did last fall on, on thinking Christianly. So if that's all new to you and you want to think more about that, go back to our fall series online and you can check that out. So, this combination we see here is this persistent, loving honesty on Jethro's part and humble openness on Moses. And it leads this rich, relational, healthy approach to leadership. So, here's take home number two what about you? Open to the help. Health- feedback of wise people in your life. Be open. Or are are you seeing someone heading for disaster, but but you're just too afraid to speak up? Courteous leads to flourishing. Uh, Early in my time here at Summit Drive, uh, as a young leader and lots of responsibilities, I was trapped that you see Moses in here. And I had a, a good friend, I think we were driving back from a hunting trip one day, and with tons of courtesy and that honesty. He said, Dave, what you're doing is not good. And he was right. He was referring to my tendency to overwork, to the detriment of my family, to the detriment. He spoke up. So practically speaking, this exchange with Jethro and Moses is a great example of what it looks like when humility and care are applied to our relationship. So is there someone you need to just gently and honestly, courteously, with deep love, say, What you're doing is not good because you see where it's heading? That's a part of what we offer each other. And then here's the final piece. There's a saying that goes, you live and you learn. And I wish that was true. Of course, experience can be a great teacher, but there is no guarantee that you or I will learn the lessons that we ought to be learning. Well, that we'll learn the right things from them. Just because you crashed a car doesn't mean you're a better driver now, right? The message of the wisdom literature of the Bible, things like the Proverbs, is not you live and you learn. It's you learn so that you can live. Honestly, I see a deep hunger within our culture for voices that will just tell me how to live. I really see a hunger for that. I'm both encouraged by it and I'm concerned about it. <laughs> Encouraged, of course, because people want to know how to live. Concerned because there's a vast number of podcasts and vloggers out there. Even Christian folks can get sucked into this idea that I simply curate my own curriculum. You know what? You can find the voices you want to hear, telling you what you want to hear. But there's something different (laughs) that you need. Listen to what Jethro says to Moses again. Teach them his, and it's referring to God here. Teach them his decrees and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. So rather than simply cleaning up messes, is what basically Moses is doing right now. People are, they're, they're living in such a way that's broken, and Moses is just trying to untangle messes all day. Jethro says, get ahead of it. Be proactive. Teach the people how to live. Teach them what God wants them to do. And notice as well, what does he teach? He doesn't teach them his own opinions. He doesn't say, here's the Moses masterclass." He says, teach them God's decrees. Teach them his instructions. To be disciples of Jesus means we pay attention to Jesus' voice. The voice of the one who made us, who knows us, who loves us, and knows how life works best. Actually, we're going to be getting into that in the next weeks to come. The Ten Commandments are coming next week. And we're going to look at that in more detail. So the question is, whose voice are you listening to? Are you comparing those voices to the voice of the one who made you and loved you? Part of what being the church means is that we pay close attention to what God has spoken through the scriptures and most perfectly then revealed through his son Jesus. That's why we do this. That's why we give priority to reading and hearing the scriptures together every Sunday and doing our best to be capable at unpacking what they mean for us so we can live by them So here's our last take-home. This is something we need for each other, actually, as well. Yes, they're teachers. Uh, God has ordained, God has planned, God has designed that certain people would set aside a, a chunk of their life to study the Scriptures in depth so they can teach well. That's a part of the calling of what pastors and teachers are called to do. But at some level, every single one of you has a ministry of teaching. You really do something where you need to learn how to pass that on to others. Parents, you have the beautiful role of instructing your children in what God says. That's a part of what you're called to. If you lead a life group, if you're part of a ministry team, like with our youth or with our kids' ministry, you have a share in this task. It's not always in spoken words, though it's that too, but it's through your example, it's through how you live, and through what you say. And every one of us, I truly believe this, with the Spirit's help are to be friends who are capable of speaking with your friends with biblical wisdom, that you know the Scriptures well enough that you can actually hold each other up and be honest and truthful and courteous and helpful to each other. That's part of our role for each other, is to speak that truth in life into each other's lives. It's one of the reasons why we offer various studies throughout the week as well. We do Bible studies. We have life groups. And part of our life group is, is not just like, well, we hang out and share our lives. That's true. That's so, super important. We also open the text. We want to be capable followers of Jesus. So let me wrap up here. It's true. The Western books with this strong, autonomous, independent cowboy myth it plays throughout them. That's, that's totally true. But I was surprised at how the last one I read, I showed you the picture of the cover. I finished it last week. I was surprised how it ended. I want to share it with you. I feel like I want to talk in a cowboy draw, and I'm going to try not to, because I'll embarrass myself. But something about reading this, Louis more stuff out loud. So if it comes out, I'm not trying, okay? It's just, it's default. Okay, so hold up against, like, this rock wall, He's in the sage and the grass. The the main character, his name is William Tell Sackett. He is bleeding out from a bullet wound, and he's surrounded by about 20 guys below him who are hunting him. What he didn't know was that word of him being hunted by this group of people has spread around the area. And distant relatives, the Sackett clan, they hear of his distress, they saddle their horses, they holster their guns, and they ride out to his rescue. So he's lying there in the sage and the grass, and he's bleeding out. He has no hope in the world. And then here's what it says I'm going to read to you from the text. Another voice called down, and it was a voice I knew. All of you down there, back up and drop your guns, or we'll cut you like doll rags. Okay, it is a Western, right? That was Orin. Orin? Here? Out of the corner of my eye, I could see a row of men along that hill where I'd been lying. Orn was there, all right, and Tyrell, and there were some others I didn't know. Then I heard Nolan Sackett's voice, you boys wanted a fight? Now you got it. And we might expect in a Western, they got it, <laughs> okay? But after, after the dust settles, after the gun smoke clears, in the final clause of the book, it has William looking around, At those who had come to his rescue. And he says this Me standing there amongst them, I looked and I knew I was not alone and I'd never be alone again. Never be alone again. God's people, we, God's people, are rescued. We're the rescued ones. We've been saved by God's mighty hand by his sheer grace, but we are not rescued into isolation. We are rescued into a community. It's a community that goes throughout history, that goes all the way around the globe. It's full of people you've never met before. And they're your people. We're saved into a community where we can look around. And you can look around this family today. There's people people you don't know. They are your family. And you can say to yourself as you look around the room, you can say to yourself, I'm not alone. And I'll never be alone again. This is, this is just true, and this is us. This is what it looks like to be God's people. So do you need help? Let others know. Do you, need, do you see someone's hands trembling? Go hold them up. There's lots of practical ways to do that. Is someone heading down a road that will only end in ruin? With empathy and love, let them know what you see. Is someone with proven wisdom speaking into your life in a way that makes you uncomfortable? Listen to them. Weigh what they say, but listen. You might find their advice is so freeing. And know that because God lives in you, God lives in us, and forms us into his people, you will never be alone again. Let's pray. God, we want to ask that you would teach us what Moses learned that day. That day he learned from the wisdom of his father-in-law that you have given us each other. That's your plan, that we need each other, and we do. We pray, Father, that you would enable us by your Spirit's help to notice and to love each other deeply from the heart, as we read in 1 Peter. Now, Lord, for those who feel like they're alone alone, I want to ask God that they would let others know so that we could know that we're never alone. We can share the burden with each other. And God, thank you that you've called us to be those who listen to instruction but also pass it on to speak with your wisdom. Empower us as a community to both know your voice and to help each other hear it. We pray all these things, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen.